This is a conversation with Viola Joe of Vice News on the scope and scale of the gig economy in China. While companies like Uber, DoorDash, Postmates, and others do not have a presence in China, a misconception is that they do not exist. In fact, the gig economy of China, with companies like Meituan, Elema, Pinduoduo, Alibaba, and others, is a dominant factor in how China's economy is restructuring internally. That has grave and important implications, not just for the laborers and workforce of China, but for global labor as a whole. I discuss these issues with Viola, as well as the increasing tensions between various class elements in China society, notably a turn from admiration to envy to disgust with some of China's billionaire class, and if solidarity can be built between the programmers who run China's gig economy and its algorithms. And the laborers who are the actual sweat, blood, and muscle behind these companies' wealth and value. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We have fascinating conversations on tech, global labor, and other topics. I would recommend our chats with Edward Ongweso, also a vice, on some of these subjects. And you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. We host print interviews with guests on a variety of subjects. Recently, we spoke to the Chuang Collective of China for their thoughts on labor and organizing in the People's Republic of China. Here's my conversation now with Viola Zhou on the gig economy in China. I hope you enjoy our chat today. My name is Viola Zhou, and I am a journalist based in Hong Kong.、Um, now I'm working for Vice. My job title is a staff writer, so、uh, I cover a very broad range of topics, from politics to diplomacy, to、um, basically anything that happens in China that would interest an English-speaking audience. So.、Um, I have covered a lot about labor rights in China. Uh, uh, sorry, I guess I also talk about my previous job because I just joined Vice this year. Before that, I was working for the South China Morning Post, and for the、um, last two years, I was on this project called Inkstone. It's、uh, like a vertical、um, writing about China for an American audience.、Uh, I have done a lot of. Stories about labor rights, about delivery workers, because、um, that's what I personally very interested in.、Uh, yeah, so right now we, Vice is also trying to do a lot of technology stories, and we are especially interested in how that impacts people's life. For example,、uh, privacy,、um, surveillance, and also the labor problems. So we're also interested in the the problems behind and how that impacts not the middle only the middle class and also the the working class people.
to start, I guess, uh, a two-part question, something I wonder about in a lot of this reporting is who is the intended audience? I think it's always very interesting to ask that question of journalists. So for the stories that you're trying to write, uh, who is the intended audience? And then for these sort of themes of the future and work of capitalism in China, um, is there sort of one story either you've written or a colleague or a respected peer has written that you think encapsulates a lot of the problems we'll be discussing today? I think uh, my intended audience would be a lot of professionals uh, who are interested in China but live in the West because I write in English and Vice is blocked in China just like a lot of uh, foreign media. So uh, I would really want to write for a Chinese audience, but um, I think I write in English and if I make this choice, I have to get, give up that area. Um, but I want to point out that in China, there's actually a lot of fantastic journalistic work on labor rights because I read a lot of, of my uh, inspirations. I got them from reading Chinese media. And I think um, even with censorship and uh, the, all the restrictions on, on doing on writing news in China, actually labor rights, you still have some space to discuss them. Uh, for example, like delivery workers, because they are so close to the life of ordinary Chinese and people are very interested in this topic. And if some someone, some publication, they um, did an investigative or feature on delivery workers, they, they became viral instantly. So I think it's really good that, um, that also answered the, the, the question that um, what works I value or recommend. Actually, I, I value a lot. Um, I value those Chinese works a lot because they are there, they're on the ground and then probably more than the foreign correspondents um, and more than me. So I think it's very important to follow uh, what they are writing. And Yes, uh, another question is like, what are the stories that will decide the future of capitalism? Um, it's very broad. I probably, um, I can't predict what other issues that will come up in the future. I think part of it is, there are a lot of similar topics that are happening in China and in the West, for example, uh, technology, uh, automation, or for example, environments. And one topic I want to highlight about China is, I think there will be more stories about whether workers feel they are being compensated properly for their labor, or if they feel personally fulfilled doing what they do. Because I feel during the, the early years of the economic reform, for, for example, in the, in the 80s or in, in the 90s, working is a is a very, very positive term. You heard this term, dagom, and it was very positive back then that you left your hometown, you go to a big city, you make money, and then you lift yourself out of poverty. And for the, for the white collar people or, or entrepreneurs, if you're innovative, you're, if you're hardworking enough, like Jack Ma, you, you, you become rich. But I feel the trend now is like people become more and more uh, disillusioned about working about that goal. It became a negative term right now. And there's a like very popular word called involution. It's about middle class and also um, 
workers, they feel like no matter no matter how hard I work, I will never be able to climb up the ladder. And this kind of feeling that people feel like, why I work, I work so hard, but I, I couldn't get anything in return. I think this is a topic that's uh, that is worth following for for journalists and for probably scholars to see um, that would kind of define the future of, of capitalism because like under capitalism, you need people to work hard. And if people don't feel that they want to work hard and then that would be uh, a problem. So we'll focus mostly on, mostly on labor and the structures of uh, the gig economy in China or its general sort of outline. Um, but, uh, you know, this was a real tension for me in composing the questions for our conversation is it really is odd when you start to look into some of the slang of uh, more white collar or educated Chinese complaining about labor that as you alluded to, you know, phrases like da gong or, you know, moving bricks, um, that there seems to be a real disdain for laborers, whereas before in earlier periods of modern Chinese history, workers and laborers would be really venerated and really um, held up as sort of the backbone of uh, Chinese society under the PRC. Do you have any sense of how this um, cultural evolution has happened where someone like Jack Ma, you know, maybe 50 years ago would have been a, a, a villain, <laughs> quite frankly. How how have these roles flipped in this way where to be a laborer is, is to be seen as sort of lowly or a very um, dark sort of existence and to be, you know, moonwalking on stage like, you know, sort of a preening prima donna. I'm not a fan of Jack Ma. I'm not a fan of any billionaire. But how, how have these rules flipped and how, how did that happen in a very broad sense within China? How did we go from, you know, the uh, rise ye prisoners of starvation to Jack Ma moonwalking uh, in, in any general way you could paint that picture? It really has a lot to do with the state policy, like the states is backing the entrepreneurs, the, the billionaires, because um, economic growth is now like a key source of legitimacy for, for the Chinese leadership. And these um, billionaires, they, they are seen as people who create wealth for the country from the, from the, and then to make the country more powerful. That's from the leadership points of view. And for ordinary people, um, the narrative for many years until, until fairly recently is that those people that became wealthy because they worked hard. Uh, and then because they are smarter, they are more, more creative than ordinary people. That's why they are like Jack Maher. Uh, everyone looks, uh, up, looks up to him because every, every sentence he said becomes a quote that everyone wants to be as rich as him. And then people will see what he says as guidance. It really has to do with uh, how the system has changed in China from a, a plan economy to uh, where com competition is encouraged and became rich is a sign of 
success. And then the the other part of that, I guess, uh, before we turn to sort of the back to the gig economy and China Silicon Valley's, when we look at younger workers uh, questioning, you know, uh, Jojo Leo culture, you know, nine nine six, and questioning um, uh, the amount of labor that they're putting in, is there a sense that they're questioning the latter? the latter being capitalism, or are they questioning that they can't climb up the ladder? How do you see that criticism um, shaping itself in these conversations between China's sort of white-collar, educated workforce? I think it's a very, very important question that are they, are they unhappy only because they cannot climb up the ladder or they are actually questioning the ladder itself? Um, I don't know, but I feel it's probably mixed. For some people, they are already questioning the entire capitalism system. Um, and then for some people, they are probably just frustrated they, that they have no channel to climb up. Um, I think uh, like in the later part, we can talk about how um, it also related to the solidarity between white collar and blue collar workers. It's like, are people real and uh, have people realized that when you see the online discussion around Jojo Liu, around 996, and then you can see people using a lot of Marxist language because actually every Chinese student learned those language in school. And then now they kind of like applying it. They, they talk about uh, exploitation. They talk about like, blood-sucking capitalists. But in some other way, I also feel like people are not that critical of the entire system. They still in some way believe that they deserve better if they work more. And then they feel that the reason they are disillusioned is because they, to some extent, they still believe in the capitalism system. That's why they think they deserve more. If they have been like critical of the entire system from the beginning, they will not even enter the system. They will not even compete hard. And and for these criticisms, this is the last aside before we get back to our set list. Has the party under uh, Xi Jinping um, allowed for spaces of this criticism to exist, or similar to the somewhat heavy-handed prosecution of uh, the JSEC movement workers who went down? I. Bl- to Guangzhou's manufacturing belt to try to organize. Um, are we seeing this criticism manifest itself in ways that the party finds concerning or for the time being is the party allowing these discussions and criticisms of um, billionaires of capitalism to exist in, in China's digital space? Yes, we are seeing more criticism and then an easy conclusion is like, oh, Chinese Chinese urban workers are becoming more critical of the capitalist system. But yes, as you said, we should always bear in mind that what we see on Chinese internet is what people are allowed to say. Um, because if the government wants to end the entire discussion, they, they can easily do that. And then Jojo Liu was censored before, and then there was a website that was um, briefly taken down. And um, and I want to. I I feel like the party is allowing a space for people to criticize um, the big companies, and to some extents, um, this is a, a bit of speculation. To some extents, I think they do feel there's a lot of steam going on, and then there's 
there are people who are frustrated and then they want to let some of the, some of the criticism out so the company can respond in some way and like the party doesn't want people to be to be angry all the time they still want people to feel satisfied about their life that's how people will continue supports the leadership so they do want to let some of the steam out and then probably want the companies to cheat their workers better to to ease the discontents towards their working conditions. But also, I don't think the party wants to wants people to openly criticize the authorities. For example, you will see very, very few discussions actually about unionizing, about collective action on Chinese internet. That's a major difference between the sort of discussion on in China and similar discussion in the US probably because in the US people are actually acting to 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 form their own groups to protest and to uh, challenge the authority challenging the company leadership but in China a lot of criticism is existing online but we see very very um, few actually collective actions like the Jason's case and if that sort of protest happen and i think they are still expect to be cracked down so turning to the structure of uh of the gig economy in china um could you explain just very briefly who the major players are so in the u.s we would have things like doordash uh, uber uh, instacart could you explain their counterparts in China, so for an Uber, we would have Didi Kwai and so on. What what would be the major players? And then in terms of their primacy or how central they are, um, how have they really impacted uh, the urban life of, let's say, China's educated class? And then for the laborers behind those systems, how have they really educated perhaps the the rural class or the migrant communities that power um, power these gig economy entities in China. So could you talk a little bit about the major players and then how your experience would differ very greatly in China between being a customer and being a worker for these entities? I think also it de- depends on how we define gig economy. Um, I think Taobao is also kind of a gig economy because it pours smaller vendors together to work for a big platform and those vendors can get on or get off anytime they want um, but um, if we are talking about more narrowly about uh, things like delivery or uh, or like driving and then we have like like uber um, versus dd and then we have doordash that's uh, food delivery versus um, apps like Meituan and Olema in China, and Instacart is uh, grocery shopping, right? So that would be an equivalent of actually every major tech company is doing grocery shopping in China right now because um, it's it's seen as the new it's a new investment hotspot. So like Alibaba has its own grocery shopping um, app and. Meituan is a super app, so it, it basically has everything. And uh, Pinduoduo has its own Duoduo uh, Maicai, and uh, there are also JD has its own grocery shopping service. 
there are also a few smaller apps. Um, a, a major difference between those apps in the West and the apps in China, um, I think one is the Chinese apps tend to expand in a way that it wants to cover every service. For example, Meituan, you can you can buy groceries, you can order foods, you can buy movie tickets, and it's also a review system that you can you can review restaurants and order other kind of services. Um, and also, they are often linked together with their investors. For example, Meituan and Tencent, uh, they work very closely. So it also is connected to WeChat, like same way as like Olama is connected with Alipay. So they they tend to it makes it easier for them to cover every aspect of someone's life in China. Basically, if you live in the city, it's it's hard to live without those apps. It's so easy to access. Mm, if you have a phone, you have like Alipay or WeChat Pay on your phone, and then you can jump to a delivery app directly through those apps. You just cannot leave this ecosystem. And um, I'm not sure about the experience in the US, but I feel like in Hong Kong, um, delivery is quite expensive. It's much, uh, it's more expensive than me going down and buy takeaway myself. But in China, delivery is very, very cheap. I feel for an urban white collar worker. So people just do that more often. Um, it's partly because labor is so cheap. So they create this gap that you don't need to spend much more money, maybe like less than $1 more if you want something delivered. So it creates an incentive for people to use that service more often. So um, in talking to uh, Edward Ongweso of Vice, who does a lot of reporting on U.S. gig economy entities, uh, notably Uber, he talked to me about how um, they're one of the more uh, pointed criticisms he has of uh, gig economy companies is that they financialize and monetize nearly all uh, sort of human interactions. Whereas before, if you had, a, let's say, an independent cab driver or a uh, motorcycle taxi or delivery man, you would have sort of many idiosyncratic ways your relationship might develop. Sometimes you'd get a, you know, a shitty taxi driver. Sometimes you'd get a great taxi driver who, you know, would recommend you the, the latest bars or uh, give you a slice of life taste of whatever city you're in. And what the gig economy does is it takes this sort of informal labor and formalizes it and financializes it. So uh, the interaction that you might have had, the human interaction between a taxi driver and a, uh, a, a customer, then becomes you a set uh, list of expectations that you would have for it to be an Uber experience. There has to be a bottle of water. There has to be candy. There has to be personalized playlists. The driver cannot be talking. The driver cannot use the bathroom. And, and sort of on and on it goes until the, the freedom that maybe an individual driver or parcel delivery person or so on may have had becomes quite formalized. And I, I guess for um, within Chinese society, how have you seen the gig economy maybe 
formalize, financialize, and depersonalize some of this informal labor by formalizing it within these companies. Um, could you talk about that, just how it's altered sort of day-to-day -day life in a cultural way um, in the large cities where the gig economy is so dominant in China? Yes, I think that sounds very similar to what you just described um, of what is happening in Western societies. For example, in China now, you order order delivery instead of going to the restaurant yourself. And the experience you get from interacting with a delivery worker is designed by the company itself. Like you're so, the, the worker is supposed to say, have a nice meal. And then this sentence is not like, they wholeheartedly wanted to say this. It's just they want a good review. And then that's part of the program designed by these big platforms. But I want, also want to say, um, it's not a problem unique to the gig economy. It's a problem like of the entire economy as, um, as those big corporates grows. It's like now you go to convenience stores instead of a neighborhood's store opens by an individual and then you get a standardized service like that person will say hello and thank you and then it's all part of a program instead of you have a have a like impromptu interaction with 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 an individual and then or you go to mcdonald's in, in instead of uh individual individually wrong um restaurants um, so I think it's part of the overall trend, but yes, like economy makes it more comprehensive or like make it more, um, it's more intruding in some way that the experience is, has like covered every aspect of your life from like how someone goes, comes to your door to, uh, how you ride a taxi to, um, even when you go to a restaurant, they will be thinking about the reviews you will get. And then the, the corporates, the, the platforms, they have a role to play in, in like deciding how, how humans interact with each other. We often see the part of their work as like bringing a meal to our doors. But actually, if you follow those workers on Kuaishou and uh, or like follow their chat rooms, you will see actually their work involves much more than that. One thing is like they often receive extra requests from customers. Like, I don't know if it also happens with DoorDash delivery workers, but in China, um, some customers, they will ask like, oh, can you buy an extra pack of cigarettes for me when you are delivering my meal? Or can you buy some period products for me when you're on your way? And the delivery workers, they will try very hard to accommodate those because they are just so desperate to, or too, so scared to get bad reviews. And if they get bad reviews, it's very hard for them to protest against them. So they try to do everything the customers ask. Um, that came with no compensation. They get no extra money for that. So it makes their job harder um, in some way. And I also want to emphasize the emotional labor they are doing because those workers, they are required to visit strangers' home um, constantly. 
and they are required to be nice to everyone. Um, I feel it's a huge mental task and um, people don't appreciate that enough. And within a China where um, a, a, a big component of its economy has been manufacturing, um, one of the criticisms, again, from people like Edward of gig economies specifically is that your boss might be an algorithm. So for a company like Uber um, and uh, let's say the equivalent in China of a Didi Kwai, the algorithm is going to be setting the terms in terms of uh, how many people you can pick up. For food delivery companies, um, which which we'll talk about in, in more detail in a second, um, they, the algorithm might say, this is the expected amount of time for this delivery. Anything over, will we will dock your pay. It doesn't matter if you get a flat tire. It doesn't matter if the directions the algorithm has used would take you through construction or have you driving on the wrong side of the road. The algorithm is setting the terms. Um, so for a China where factory labor um, in, in places like Guangzhou has long sort of... Um, is not uh, something that is uh, to be idealized either, but is there conversation at the driver level or the gig economy laborer level of the dissatisfaction with these algorithms being their bosses, being their supervisors, as opposed to an actual human? Yes, definitely. That's a big complaint from these delivery workers. Um, especially when it comes to delivery, like most of them, they ride a scooter and those algorithms have to decide, uh, as you said, how much time they're, they are supposed to spend on delivering this meal and then which routes they should take. But um, I will point to one of uh, the Chinese media reports about this kind of algorithms that a lot of times they don't work or they don't make sense. They, they don't know whether there's a road that's under construction um, or they don't, they design in a way that you're supposed to take the wrong route. You're su supposed to cross where you're, you, you're not allowed to. Or um, it also doesn't take, count, take into account of the weather of like the traffic accidents. Um, so, the result is like those delivery workers, they either miss the time limit, they either miss the deadline or they have to violence traffic rules. And the latter is what happens a lot. They would rather risk their life so they could avoid paying for the penalty that comes from missing the deadlines. So yes, algorithm, because like in a factory, at least you have a human to interact with, to complain to. And then the human may decide that, may, may decide to cut, cut you some slack that maybe you are not pun punished for this. This is not your fault. But algorithm is, it makes it much harder to, to, um, to negotiate, to complain. And they, they are emotionless. They, they, they cannot uh, decide to cut, cut you some slack. Yeah, so definitely it makes it harder for the workers. Cause like we talk about how algorithms 
make everyone behave the same that you you say the same to the the passengers on your car you say the same to to um, you get the same greetings from the the workers and then when you get the same greetings you forget about actually the people who give those greetings still it still takes a lot of labor for them to say that for them to smile um yeah so i think that's something that as consumers we need to bear in mind and then looking at the story of uh, delivery drivers uh, and other laborers within the, the gig economy of China, and I'm being broad as well when I say gig economy, I'm basically any monopolistic entity for the most part now might be considered the gig economy. You know, it's, uh, it's hard to know where Amazon begins and ends. It's hard to know where Taobao begins and ends. Uh, it's hard to know where most of these companies begin and end. They're, they're, um, spider webs really connect to seemingly every facet uh, once you get to a certain level of monopoly uh, that it seemingly connects to everything within a given economy, uh, both nationally and globally. Um, for the workers within these uh, gig economy companies, what have been, uh, and, and here I'm thinking specifically of Ren Wu, the, um, uh, one of the, the large... Yes. Um, in, in centering your own journalism and, and other journalism you've respected, has the what have these gig economy workers been going through? What have they been enduring? And are we starting to see either pushback from those drivers or from um, uh, consumers who are saying, well, I'm not going to use a Didi Kwai. I'm not going to use a Meituan. Um, because of the horrific conditions that many of them have had to endure. So what are some of these horror stories without being maudlin or uh, overly dramatic? What are some of the, the structural violences that these drivers have endured? And is it leading to a distaste on the part of Chinese consumers slowly for these services? We have been seeing traffic accidents a lot, and that sometimes it involves deaths. Um, there have been reports about delivery workers killed on the streets. It happens almost every year, um, if not every month. So um, that's a big part of the violence they are facing. And also delivery workers, they have to deal with law enforcement a lot because they violence traffic rules so much. So there was one case that got a lot of attention on social media that was a delivery worker was beaten up by a para-police officer when, after he, he was found to be violating traffic rules. And sometimes, um, including the story I did recently about the delivery worker who set himself on fire because he believes his pay was deducted unfairly. Um, these are very, very dramatic cases. And, and on the other side, actually there are Cases of crime or violence committed by delivery workers themselves, often against consumers. One woman was recently threatened by a delivery worker after she gave him a bad review. And there was also another case of a delivery worker killing a shopping mall staff. Um, we didn't know why, but um, I think the ref that reflects the huge pressure on delivery workers of doing their job properly. They don't want to get bad reviews. And then 
they would reset lives, uh, violate traffic rules, sometimes became so desperate, they, um, they, they, they would act violently on, uh, they would act violently on consumers. And the feedbacks or the reaction from social media is actually mixed. Um, some people, they express sympathy towards delivery workers because they understand this is not about the individuals. It's actually the, the entire system, the structure has some problems. But there are also a lot of people who hold a view that is less sympathetic. Um, so their reasoning as consumers is that I pay you to do this work. There's demand and supply. You take this work, you earn this salary because you're willing to. And you're supposed to deliver um, what this job requires. So there's not like, like a pouring of criticisms on the on the platforms and then many people are still willing to use it even after the Renwu reports there's yes a lot of backlash and the criticism is more specifically on a certain part of the of the system for example you should not let algorithm decide everything or you should pay delivery workers more uh, you should um for example give them more channels to protest those bad reviews so they have a chance to correct them. Um, we haven't seen like a huge backlash on the monopoly of those companies. So I think um, it's still far from saying that people are boycotting those uh, services because they see some something that they are not happy with uh, in, in the design of the programs. When we look at things like the, um, like the gig economy, from my understanding, the party has at times really praised these um, companies as being sort of integral to the, the development of China's economy. And, uh, it's always very important. I was just having this discussion the other day with a friend here in Taiwan that a country's economy and your personal economy are very, very different. That, you know, what's good for Uber and what's good for a worker at Uber are oftentimes uh, completely the opposite and opposed um, from the start. And I'm wondering for your sense of China's economy what does it say that structurally the party seems to be protecting, developing, and nurturing um, the gig economy? And for a China that is very um, nervous about things like unions or labor organizing that doesn't go through the party or party-approved unions, is do these workers have a way to protect themselves currently, or is it going to sort of take... Um, more uh, illegal action or illegal organizing, just wildcat strikes to sort of defend themselves. So what, is, what does it say to you about why the party is protecting these gig economy entities? And then um, for the workers, can they rely on the state or are they going to have to maybe fight with the state in order to get better conditions for themselves at these companies? 
Um, I think the first part of the question is the expansion of gig economy is actually consistent with the state push that China should shift from a, a manufacturing economy to a service economy. So, um, so with the expansion of gig economy, people might spend more on foods, spend more on personal entertainment. By the way, like live streaming is also uh, a big part of the gig economy. Um, and people might um, spend more on traveling. Um, so it helps stimulate uh, consumption, I would say. So yes, the state is happy with the expansion of a gig, gig economy. And in terms of unionizing um, collective actions, I talked with China Labor Bulletin a few years back when I was writing about delivery workers. And um, I remember their point is actually the gig economy makes it harder for people to unionize compared with factories. For example, in factory, all the workers, they're in the same space. And you can find your fellows, your peers very easily, and then you are facing the same problem. So it's easier to band together as a group. And another thing is that in a factory, you see who your uh, superior is, you see where the boss is. So for, for example, it will be easier to you for you to let's form a group and then let's gather outside of the office of the factory owner and demand our wages. But for a gig economy, it's harder because it's so fragmented. Everyone walks on a, on a different street or, or um, for example, Uber, you, you drive your own car, you don't see your coworkers and so you don't see your boss as well. The tech companies are so far away. And it's like, a, for example, it's a huge building in Hangzhou or a huge building in Shenzhen. It's, it makes it much harder for you to um, informally unionize and protest in front of your bosses. So it in some way discourages collective actions. So I don't think that's a top concern for, for the party, at least compared to um, manufacturing. Manufacturing collective action could be, could be more often, could be easier. I, I can understand the, within a capitalist uh, world, that we need jobs, but I don't understand why it requires a very small coterie at all of these companies of billionaires who, quite frankly, don't need to be billionaires uh, or millionaires. Do you have a sense from sort of recent Chinese uh, statecraft and domestic politics how the party is dealing with the rise of billionaires and why it's allowed them, I guess this is the essence of my question, why is it allowed them to rise in the first place or at all? Why is it allowed this this billionaire class to exist? It's a hard question because uh, I'm not an expert in uh, elite politics, but I don't think the party has planned that. Um, I think the like Deng Xiaoping's quote is like, we let some people to get rich first. And then these rich people, they will create an economy, they will set up companies, and then they will help the rest of the population to become rich. And from the party's point of view, yes, it is how the country has developed. developed. So um, they they let this these people to become billionaires and the rationale is their company 
will employ more poor people and then will help these poor, poor people to be able to make enough money to feed themselves to do. So um, in other words, like these billionaires, they're, it's hard to replace them um, if you don't have these big companies, like the party will be, is supposed to feed those people. Um, I just, I guess I can say like, um, what is the alternative plan? So what do you think the party has other ways to feed the entire population? Um, I guess the altern alternative is to go back to um, what it has done in the 50s to like take back all those companies and then run these as states enterprises. And I guess they didn't think that would work. But another thing is like, yes, by allowing these criticisms, I feel the sense that the party is sending a signal to the billionaires that you need to take care of the workers. You cannot let their discontent grow and then threaten social stability. But I don't, I don't think the party has a plan to actually replace these billionaires and come up with a, an alternative economic system that is able to sustain the, the population. So to move to sort of the tail end of our conversation, um, the academic Fu Zheng uh, recently wrote for Six Stone, who, good job, Six Stone. I was, I did not like a lot of their coverage early on, and I think they're doing a really great job recently. So if anyone listens from Six Stone, good job. You've really uh, become a pretty good outlet. Um, and in interviewing uh, Fu Zheng, uh, who's a scholar, I believe in labor, they were talking a lot about um, if there are chances for solidarity, so as we were talking about uh, at the start of our conversation, uh, sort of to be a laborer, to be a dakong is sort of, you know, almost a, a, a way to criticize yourself if you're a white collar worker, to sort of criticize the fact that you can't climb up the ladder of capitalism. Um do you see within this uh, increasing interest in the conditions of migrant laborers, the interest in, um, as we, we talked about the, the driver who set himself on fire, a Pinduoduo worker died recently of overwork. And this was also a huge sort of scandal within, uh, within China, particularly its white collar labor force. This was like an engineer, I believe at one of their companies, and you can clarify that. But for the driver setting themselves on fire to a worker dying of overwork, from uh, workers being discontent to white-collar workers calling themselves laborers, do you see a chance for solidarity between the people making the algorithms and the people who have to obey them at these uh, big gig economy companies in China? To be honest, I personally think we are still far away from that. Uh, I really like Fujian's article and I learned from a lot from her writing that it, it got me thinking about the concept of overtime that when when white collar workers are complaining about over, overtime, but without realizing it's actually a privilege for blue collar workers because they want to work more so they can make more money. Um, it also is why a lot of people joins uh, become delivery workers um, from like Erlama and, and May Twain's reports. So one of the top reasons people give 
as um, becoming delivery workers uh, instead of factory workers or instead of sales people. It's like it's, if you work harder, you can guarantee that you will get more money in return. So blue collar workers, they are focused on that. And then over time, it's a good thing for them. But for white collar workers, they are complaining about over time. Um, and also she talked about this appropriation of the term um, when white collar workers talk about we are dagongren in a sar sarcastic way to mock their harsh work, work conditions. They, they didn't acknowledge enough of how privileged they are in compared to blue collar workers. Those dagongren um, at Alibaba, for example, they get nap time, they get they get taxi um, reimbursement. Actually, I don't know about taxi re reimbursement, but um, at least they get free dinner and then they get a fancy canteen, they get snacks, and then they get to sit down um, the entire day. Even though they work long hours, they get year-end bonus. Sometimes they got um, stock options. It's fundamentally different from what blue-collar workers are facing while working for the same tech companies. And in terms of solidarity, um, I don't see enough um, discussions about the system that is exploring both workers. For example, I will say um, there's a viral video. I'm not sure if you have seen it. A Pinduoduo worker who was laid off after, after he took a picture of a coworker being carried onto an ambulance. And then after he was laid off, he gave a very passionate, a very critical speech online, filmed a video of himself talking about how evil Pinduoduo is. And one of the things he said that really captured me, he said, Pinduoduo is exploiting the smartest group in China. And I feel it's very interesting because he's employing, uh, implying that uh, we are we programmers, we are tech workers, we graduated from very good schools. We are smarter than other people. And then now these tech companies are, are exploiting us. So his message is that, which the sentiment as I think is shared by uh, a lot of um, middle-class white collar workers in China is that they worked harder than others to climb up the um, the latter, they they, um, they they went to a good school, they got into a big company in a very competitive job market. And it is a very hard process. And because I went through the same urban education system, but does that mean that they are actually smarter, more hardworking than blue collar workers? This is not, not a topic that is uh, being challenged enough. And a lot of people still share the sentiment that they deserve more than blue collar workers. Like, oh, it's normal that they work over time because, because they're just cheap labor, but we should not be treated like this because we are smarter, we, we work hard, um, we deserve more. For the digital spaces of China, are there f platforms or frameworks or are people trying to organize them where workers uh, where white collar and blue collar workers can talk or chat or is it are these these sort of nasty and this again is not unique to China but it's just sort of these nasty closed ecosystems where you know let's say an Amazon programmer is never going to talk to an Amazon worker or a Pinduoduo uh, 
programmer is never going to talk to someone handling parcels for Pinduoduo um, in the warehouse. Is, is there, if in the real world, there's not a lot of chances to chat other than, you know, just someone coming to your door, are there digital spaces that are emerging for people to reach out to maybe a driver who was featured in a Renwu story, for example? I think it's possible, but not a lot of people have the incentive to reach out, to be honest. Um, I sometimes, for example, on Zhihu, that's a very, very white collar, very uh, a, a quarrel-like platform that's mostly populated by highly educated people, a lot of tech bros. Uh, I can see answers posted by a delivery worker about um, questions like um, which delivery platform I should work with or like how like about actually these algorithms. But it's, it's, they are the minority. And also there are um, groups that's mostly populated by, by, um, by the working class. For example, some, some um, live streaming platforms um, like Kuaishou. Yeah. Uh, you can see many um, delivery workers or factory workers, they are trying to be like social media uh, personalities and they talk about their daily life, um, giving out deliveries. Oh, I met this super nasty consumer um, who yelled at me or whatever. And then some people, they were too slow to pick up deliveries. So I got punished instead. But those spaces, a more about a more just like you see comments posted about other delivery workers or other factory workers. You don't see a lot of like um, urban educated programmers actually commenting like, oh, like it's how the algorithm works. So I feel this this kind of space exists, but not not a lot of people are actually using them to build solidarity or to facilitate communication. I guess the last question. Uh... And then if you, there are, if there's anything we missed or anything you wanted to emphasize, uh, you can do that at the end. For the last question, you know, I, the shame of doing articles or podcasts like this is people will read them or listen to them and go, oh, okay. And, you know, the, <laughs> and then go back on Tinder or Instagram, um, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, the dedication it, it takes to actually build solidarity is... is uh, is a very deep commitment. And some groups have done that. Um, uh, the scholar Eli Friedman, China Labor Bulletin, uh, the militant group, uh, militant labor group Chuang. You know, these are all, I think, really good examples of building solidarity with China's uh, working class, China's laborers. Um, and then there's a lot of great reporting, um, both within China and globally, uh, on uh China's tech community, the, the, the white collar workers, but for ordinary people listening, um, is there a sense of advice you would have of if anyone wants to go beyond an article, go beyond a podcast, what are real possibilities you see either for individuals or let's say a group like gig workers rising in the United States, the angry workers collective in the great Britain, what is the sense you have of how individuals or groups that are organizing in labor spaces in Western countries can better connect and build solidarity on some of these issues in China? And if there's no possibilities, you see, it's good to talk about that so we know what we're up against as well. I think there are possibilities. Um, 
one thing I think the the uh, so before you are able to build a solidarity to do something in the real world, I think the foundation is that you have to be able to know what Chinese workers are dealing with on a daily basis. So it just requires a lot of um, reading, a lot of watching um, to understand what Chinese workers are facing. Um, and yes, there are possibility of actually communicating with them. For example, you could set up a Chinese account on Chinese social media on Kuaishou, for example, so you can talk about some of the labor issues and they, they may not be very politically sensitive at the beginning. And you could, for example, talk about the experience of a Uber worker in America, of an Amazon worker. And to, at least, uh, uh, sorry, like, but you have to speak Chinese uh, because uh, if you do everything English um, and it's mo mostly for a Western audience. So I think if you really want to do it, there, there are possibility where you can communicate directly with, with people in China. And um, actually it's the same way around. I think Chinese people, including me, um, know very little about what workers in America are facing. Um, so it becomes very hard for us to relate our situation or for Chinese worker to um, connect their experience with experience of a worker on a, another side of the planet. So it requires a lot of um, efforts that creates mutual understanding. Um, oh, also I've, um, there's an alternative channel for people to, to like protest for labor rights is to get on social media. Um, there was also some data from China Labor Bulletin that's when people feel their salary are deducted, a majority of them, their tactic is to advocating for themselves on social media. So um, I feel it's good that you still have this way to protest, but also it's sad in a way is, is it means that you have run out of other, other ways and for example, you actually you are supposed to um, have a legal channel or have a administrative channel that can give fair treatment to everyone. But instead, you have to depend on social media. And social media campaigns are very hard to run, actually. And it's very random. For example, 100 people, they complain on social media. Maybe only one get viral and then get some response from the authority. Um, I remember there's a very popular it's a TikTok style video posted by a delivery worker. It's titled um, Three Questions to Wang Xing. So Wang Xing is the CEO of Meituan. So the delivery worker gave a very passionate speech about how the algorithm is designed in a flawed way or how or why we should be punished for, for missing very, very tight deadlines. And yes, there are successive, successful cases like that, but um, I just want to say that people should not be required to be social media experts to be able to uh, enjoy their labor rights. I think maybe I would recommend two documentaries. 
One is American Factory uh, on Netflix. I think that's a lot of people have watched already, but I think that helps um, American workers to, to see the different situation faced by people uh, in both countries. And another documentary I want to recommend is called We Were Smart. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, it's, I think it comes with English subtitle. I'm not sure. Um, so I think it, it should be available in some websites. Um, I hope it could be um, available in, um, to a larger audience. Um, I feel that tells, it's very shocking to me because it tells a lot about the workers that are invisible to us, the people who are not coming to our doors. And there's a lot of people, there are still a lot of people who are living a similar life as them in China. And they're not robots in factories. They actually have their own entertainment, have their own style, have their own culture. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great work that's helped us to emphasize with um, manufacturing workers. Oh, Viola, this was a pleasure. I think uh, you've really provided some valuable uh, insights and perspectives on um, the gig economy and labor in China. For people who are interested in your work, what would be one example of something not related to labor at all that's really interested you in your reporting recently? I try to, um, I, I think I would say, I try to spend more time on the platforms that are more popular among uh, the working class. Um, for example, Show, and for example, even like QQ, because it's more, you can find a different uh, population there instead of just focusing on Weibo because um, one is like, it's so curated, for example, the, t- the trending topic. And another thing is like the topics are more about what the middle class, what the urban educated are interested in. So I think as a journalist, I just try to look for story ideas from, from like cyber spaces that can provide us more insights about the life of the invisible population.